0: So two bacteria walk into a grungy bar. The bartender says, we don't serve bacteria here. And the bacteria say, but we work here, we're staff. Why did the mushroom get invited to the party? Because he's a fun guy. (laughs) I didn't have a good bacteria song, so I googled jokes about bacteria, so you're welcome. For the dad jokes to start this episode. If you haven't figured it out, we're going to be talking about bacteria, archaea, fungi, viruses, and prions in this episode. Welcome to the selfie life. This is Nikayla, and I wanted to thank all of you for listening and rating and reviewing and subscribing. If you are enjoying the podcast and want to help support the production of it, I have set up a Patreon page where you can support the podcast for as little as 25 cents an episode, which is about a dollar a month. Well, it's not about. It is a dollar a month. Your contribution helps me pay hosting sites and my editors and really allows me to keep putting this content out there. So check out Patreon and if you want to help me keep making these podcasts, you can also support the podcast by just subscribing, rating, reviewing, or just tell your friends about it. If you have questions, comments, corrections, concerns, please let me know. The best way to reach me is on Instagram at this life or the website selfielife.com. I post the script notes on the site and I post MCAT review questions on my story just about every day. Now let's talk about those tiny little prokaryotes. Do you remember the difference between prokaryotes and eukaryotes? Simple answer, prokaryotes do not have membrane bound organelles, eukaryotes do have membrane bound organelles. Okay, let's meet the pros. And by the pros, I mean those amazing prokaryotes that can survive in extreme environments, form symbiotic relationships, replicate in many different ways. Some can survive with oxygen, without oxygen, meaning that they can adjust their metabolism to meet the demands of their environments, which is pretty cool. And eukaryotes are the true nucleus, so membrane-bound organelles which is what our cells are, like our cells as in human cells. But we will talk about that in the next episode where we will go into specifically our cells. So prokaryotes are super simple. They don't have membrane-bound organelles and their DNA is usually concentrated in an area called the nucleoid region. We are going to talk all about the prokaryotes, but first let's do a quick rundown of the taxonomic ranks. So there are eight basic taxonomic categories. This doesn't include subspecies. Taxonomic ranks are just a way of classifying things in a step-down method, where organisms are split into more specific groups. The order from broadest to narrowest in the categorization is domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. How are we going to keep these taxonomic ranks in the correct order? Obviously, we're going to use a mnemonic device. Dumb kids playing cards on freeway get smashed. I like this one because it sounds kind of like a news headline. Dumb kids playing cards on freeway get smashed. Another one that I learned in school was King Philip came over for ginger snaps. This one is great, but it does leave out the domain. Prokaryotes make up two of the three domains. And remember that domain is the first one listed on the taxonomic ranks. Dumb kids playing cards on freeway get smashed. Domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Quiz time. Can you name the three different domains? Answer, eukarya, bacteria, and archaea. Let's take a closer look at archaea and bacteria, both of which contain prokaryotes. Actually, fun fact, there used to be only two domains, monera and eukarya, but based on genetics, they separated it out into three domains. Scientists looked at the 16S rRNA region, which is the region that I work with a lot for my research. So it's kind of cool. I'll go into more depth when we talk about the genetics. Archaea. Archaea are similar to bacteria, but they are that badass aunt that rides a motorcycle and travels around the world and makes friends wherever she goes. She helicopters skis and she swims with sharks. Some might even call her a little extreme. Archaea are archaic. They are ancient and very well adapted and can survive and thrive in extreme environments. They are extremophiles, thermophiles, heliophiles, Some are photosynthetic, but others can survive on things like methane gas and sulfur. Archaea can be found in super harsh environments. The places with high temps, cold temps, high salt, low light. So those hot springs in Yellowstone and the Great Salt Lake in Salt Lake City and probably in the South Pole. All of these locations have Archaea and they are extreme environments. Archaea are resistant to a lot of antibiotics and can be hard to target because of the similarities that they have with eukarya. Both archaea and eukarya start the translation with methionine and have similar RNA polymerases, but archaea have circular DNA, like bacteria, and reproduce via budding or binary fission. Both archaea and bacteria have flagella and come in different shapes and sizes, Basically, archaea and bacteria look similar, which is why they were originally grouped together in a group called archaeobacteria. One word. Okay, let's talk about bacteria. I will try not to get too excited or nerdy about it, but I really love the little guys. What do you think of when you hear bacteria? Do you think germs and disease, antibacterial hand soap and gels... Maybe you're up on the current research that has really surged the past 10 years and think microbiomes, specifically those in your body. There are tons of bacteria in our bodies, about 10 times as many microbes in our bodies than human cells. And the great thing about them is how helpful they actually are. Thus, all the current studies on the microbiomes. But we aren't going to go into everything. The MCAT mostly focuses on human biology as opposed to microbiology for a good reason but there are some things that we should be familiar with since it pertains to human health, disease, and treatment. The first thing we brush by is that bacterial DNA is circular and not membrane bound. It just hangs out in a specific region. It can also have extra tiny circular non-chromosomal DNA called plasmids. We will talk more about those. We still group bacteria based on shape. There are three categories to be familiar with. Coxie is round. I think of it as a single grape. Bacilli are rod-shaped, like a baguette. And Spirillia are spiraled, like a corkscrew. Kind of sounds like a lovely picnic in the making. Ooh, pop quiz time. What was the Spirochete that we talked about in the Embryogenesis 2 episode? It can cross the placenta and hurt the fetus. Hint, remember the TORCHES. Did you figure it out? Okay, here we are talking about the S in the TORCHES acronym, which is for syphilis treponema pallidum. Actually, while we're talking about spiral bacteria, I want to mention the three big spirochete bacteria that are pathogenic. Borrelia burgdorferi is Lyme disease. Treponema pallidum, which is syphilis. Leptospira interrogans I think I'm saying that one right, you guys. Leptospira interrogans In humans, this bacteria is more of an accidental infection. It causes what is known as Wells disease. It is contracted from coming in contact with infected animals, specifically their urine and blood, among other things. But how are we going to remember these? BLT. BLT is not only for bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches. It is also for the spirochetes that are pathogenic in humans. B. Borrelia burgdorferi. I remember this one because I think of the store Burgdorf's in New York City. Not, not that they are exactly related, but Burgdorf's is in New York City, which is in New York State, and Lyme disease is prevalent on the East Coast, which includes New York. L. Leptospiria interrogans. So this spirochete, it kind of actually looks like a question mark when viewed under the microscope. And when you are interrogating someone, what are you doing? You're asking them a lot of questions. So this interrogans looks like a question mark. Treponema pallidum. I honestly, I don't have a great one for remembering this one. I did some Googling and I really didn't come up with anything significant. The best I have is that trepanema sounds like a worm to me. I have no idea why, but at some point I decided the treponema sounded like a worm, and a worm relates to syphilis. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have a good connection or a good way to remember that one. If you have a great way to remember it, let me know <laughs> so I can share it. So there we have it, our spirochete BLT. <laughs> oh, I hope you're hungry. <laughs> Along with the shape of the bacteria, we also look at how they cluster or group together. So strepto means that they are in a line or a twisted chain. Staphylo is bunched together in a group, like a bunch of grapes. And diplo means that they are partnered up. So now we know that bacteria are prokaryotes that don't have complex membrane-bound organelles, but rather they have circular DNA chromosomes and are named after their shape and how they group. Now let's go and talk about bacterial cell walls. There are two types of bacterial cell walls. Type one has two membranes with a thin cell wall in between them. Type two has a thick cell wall and then a membrane. Cell walls are made of peptidoglycan. Basically, it's a sugar and an amino acid that cross bind together to form the cell wall. It's actually really cool, but I won't get into the details here because you don't need to know them for the MCAT. Just know the bacteria cell walls are made of peptidoglycan. And since humans don't have cell walls, this is a site for antibiotics to target. The cell wall is responsible for the movement of solutes in and out of the bacteria. It also provides structure. Let's start with a cell wall that is thick and then has a membrane. It's a bit simpler since it doesn't have as many layers in its envelope. For clarification, the envelope is the cell wall and the membranes. This type of cellular envelope is gram-positive, and we'll go into the gram test in just a minute. But gram-positive has two main layers in their envelopes, with a space in between called the periplasmic space. So starting on the outside, working our way into the cytoplasm region of the bacteria, we have a very thick cell wall of peptidoglycans, then the periplasmic space, and then a cellular membrane that is similar to our cell membranes. The other type of cell wall or envelope is called gram-negative. This is the envelope that has a membrane, then a thin cell wall, then a periplasmic space, and then another membrane. Another difference in this bacterial envelope structure is that the outer membrane has lipopolysaccharides sticking out of it. Okay, one more time. Gram-negative bacteria have an outer membrane that has lipopolysaccharides sticking out of them. I think of the lipopolysaccharides, like those air dancers, you know, the like tall and skinny tube-like structures that people put in front of stores to get everyone else's attention. And they dance and move around, like with, because of the fan in them. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'll put a picture in the script notes. These lipopolysaccharides stick out of the outer membrane on the gram-negative bacteria. And they're actually part of the reason gram-negative bacteria are so pathogenic in humans the lipopolysaccharides can trigger an immune response. Another reason gram-negative bacteria can be tricky to target with antibiotics is because they have that additional outer membrane, which makes it harder for antibiotics that target the cell wall to reach the cell wall and break it down so the bacteria can undergo osmotic rupture. Now let's talk about the gram-positive and negative, specifically where that name comes from. Basically, back in the day, a guy named Hans Christian Gram noticed when he was trying to stain some bacteria that some stained like a bluish-purple while the others stained a red-pink. This difference in staining color came from the physiological differences in the bacteria we just discussed. The Gram-negative absorbed the saffron counterstain, which makes the cell appear red-pink. The Gram-positive bacteria absorbs the crystal blue and appears as a blue-purple. I remember the difference by saying red is dead. Red is dead. Gram-negative bacteria are usually much more worrisome and hard to kill. Gram-negative bacteria are harder to kill because they have three layers of defense. Gram-negative stain red-pink, a.k.a. red is dead. I also used to swear that there was an Elvis Presley song about being positively blue, but when I googled it, nothing came up. But it sounds like a song Elvis would sing, right? I'm positively blue over you. Am I just making this up? I swear there's a song. I'm gonna I'm gonna try Googling it again. Anyway, gram positive stain blue purple. So before genetic identification was so prevalent, gram staining was used to help determine the type of antibiotics that would work on someone with a bacterial infection. Red is dead, aka danger. When you think dangerous bacteria, think gram negative. Gram-negative have an extra layer, so it makes them harder to kill with things like antibiotics. Positively blue, gram-positive, they stain blue, and they have a thicker cell wall with an inner membrane. I have linked some images and additional articles about gram staining if you're interested. They are in the script notes on the website. Okay, moving on. Just like humans like to live in different areas, I prefer dry heat. Some people like snow. Some people like humidity. I don't know why humidity and I don't get along. Actually, bacteria are more like sea life. Some require coming up to the surface for air, and some don't need to surface. Bacteria have specific environments where they thrive. Anaerobes don't require oxygen. Obligate aerobes require oxygen for survival. They need oxygen to metabolize. Facultative anaerobes, (laughs) they're little badasses, they can survive with oxygen or without oxygen. Aerotolerant anaerobes are unable to use oxygen for metabolism, but the presence of oxygen doesn't harm them. Bacteria get around by using flagella, which are basically long tails that they use to propel themselves around. Think propellers on a boat. They can use these flagella to move them towards or away from something. An important vocab word to know is chemotaxis. You might have heard chemotaxis when you talked about the immune system in school. Your body uses chemotaxis for an immune response. Bacteria can also use chemotaxis. Chemotaxis is simply the ability to detect chemicals and move towards or away from them, which bacteria do by way of flagella or cilia. You can also think of humans doing chemotaxis by smell. When you smell fresh bread, you might wander into the kitchen to see what's baking. Or, I should say, if it's done baking. If you smell something terrible coming from the bathroom, you're probably going to walk the other way. Okay, so bacteria have cytoplasm and cell walls and membranes, they have DNA in the nucleoid region, and they don't have membrane-bound organelles. But what organelles do they have? Some of the prep books mentioned that some bacteria have histone-like structures. But I think the most important thing to note about the other organelles that they have is that the ribosomes are different in prokaryotes and eukaryotes. The reason why noting the differences between prokaryotes and eukaryotes is that it gives us a place to target for destruction via drugs. So we mentioned that the drugs that target the cell wall, particularly the peptidoglycan links, Another set of drugs target the ribosomes. Bacterial ribosomes contain 30S and 50S subunits, while eukaryotes contain 40 and 60S. Now, how do we keep the sizes straight? Okay, so my friend really likes a Korean singer named CL. And a few years ago, she was like, hey, I want to go see a concert in LA. And I was like, oh, sure. <laughs> Let's go to LA. And I didn't know who CL was at the time, so on the way to LA, we obviously had to play her music the entire way. And she sings a song that says, "'I got myself a 40, I got myself a shorty,' and only humans are going to get themselves a 40 and get themselves a shorty." And once you remember that humans get themselves a 40, it's just plus 20. So it's plus 20 for your eukaryotes. So 40 and 60, and then the offset sizes are the size for the prokaryotes. So 30 and 50. So eukaryotes have the 40 and the 60s, prokaryotes 30s and 50s. Prokaryotes also don't have mitochondria. They use their cell membrane for the electron transport chain, which if you think about it makes so much sense. You've probably heard of the endosymbiotic hypothesis, which suggests that our modern-day mitochondria are descendants of a specialized bacteria that survived endocytosis by another species and eventually led to them being incorporated into our cytoplasm. So if we believe that our mitochondria are the descendants of a bacteria being endocytose, it makes sense that the bacteria wouldn't have mitochondria, and instead the electron transport chain is part of the membrane. I think that's just... I say cool a lot. That's, I think it's fascinating that our cells developed a symbiotic relationship way forever ago with bacteria cells. I'm going to link a paper on that in the script notes. Another interesting thing about bacteria is how they share their DNA and how they replicate. At the beginning of this episode, we talked about how bacteria don't have membrane-bound organelles. They simply have an area called the nucleoid region where their circular DNA resides. But what is really cool is that bacteria don't have to have all their DNA contained in this region or in that one main circle of DNA. There are these little sections of DNA that are smaller circles that are called plasmids. Now, bacteria can take in plasmids from other bacteria. Plasmid DNA is not necessary for survival. The bacteria can get on fine without it, but the plasmid can carry extra genetic information, like antibiotic resistance. So plasmids are not required, so they are considered extra chromosomal DNA. So how do bacteria share genetic information and reproduce? Bacteria, they don't undergo mitosis or meiosis, but they still have ways of increasing their genetic variability. Distribution of the extra-chromosomal DNA is random, and daughter cells may or may not get a copy. So, genetic variability can be increased in one of three ways. Conjugation, transformation, and transduction. Conjugation. Conjugation is basically bacteria sex, which it's conjugation. One bacteria must have what is called an F-plus plasmid. If it has the F-plus plasmid, it is considered... F-positive. If the bacteria is F-positive, it has a gene for the sex pilus, or a conjugation bridge, which is a one-way transfer of genetic material from the male, F-positive, to the F-minus bacteria. Another way was transformation. Transformation is pretty straightforward. Transformation is when bacteria pick up DNA from the environment. Transduction is when they incorporate genetic material via a vector, such as a virus, like a bacteriophage. Bacteriophages are fascinating. They are viruses that infect bacteria. They look a little weird. They look like those spaceships that inject their genetic material. You know what I'm talking about, right? The bacteriophages, like what they look like? To me, they always looked like spaceships. Anyway, bacteriophages can carry genetic material from one bacterium to another. A bacteriophage can accidentally incorporate DNA from one bacteria, and when it goes and infects another bacteria, it can transfer this captured DNA. So these three methods are how bacteria can increase their genetic variability. But how do they reproduce? Remember, it's not via mitosis or meiosis. It's by binary fission. Bacteria reproduce via binary fission, which is asexual reproduction, which is why they don't need themselves a shorty. The circular DNA replicates while the cell grows until it's large enough that it will pinch inward in the middle and produce two roughly identical daughter cells. I say roughly because remember that the plasmids are divided between the daughter cells randomly. As you can see, binary fission is a lot less involved than mitosis, which means it can happen a lot faster and can cause bacteria to grow exponentially, doubling each generation. The limiting factor for colonies is resources and waste accumulation. (gasps) Yay! That wraps up our bacterial discussion. Now we are going to cover a few things with fungus. Okay, fungi isn't huge on the MCAT. We are just going to mention the bare bones here. I do think that it will be more prevalent in medicine and on the MCAT as research advances into autoimmune disease. Okay, fungi... Fungi have cell walls made of chitin, which is the same thing lobster exoskeletons are made of. I always found that kind of freaky. I mean, lobsters and fungi? Anyway, fungi are heterotrophs, meaning that they have to take a nutrition from their environment. Fungi can reproduce either sexually or asexually, and fungi spend the majority of their lives as haploid and grow these intertwining branches called hyphae. Current research suggests that MS has a fungal component, which is pretty cool. Which is also why I say I really think, just from what I've seen and what I've read, that in the future there's going to be a lot more focus on fungi. I'll link a few articles in the script notes if anybody's interested. Now we are going to move on to viruses. But first, what is a virus? Is it alive? If you want, you can go Google this very thing and see the different factions defending their different positions. I don't have a super strong opinion, so I'm just going to kind of stick with what I was taught. Viruses have a lot of variabilities as far as pathogenicity, but they are pretty physiologically basic. They have a protein coat called a capsid and genetic material, which can be DNA or RNA, and a few of them have an envelope of proteins and lipids. Okay, so if a virus was a person, they would have on their coat, like, I don't know, a sports coat, which would be their capsid. But some viruses are extra, and they like to layer. So on top of that sports jacket, that capsid layer, they might have a massive fur coat. Think macklemore here. Now, the extra envelope or fur coat, if you will, actually, we're going to go with a faux fur coat here. The faux fur is very sensitive. You can't just throw that in the washing machine, you know, with a detergent and then move it to the dryer. No, the viral envelope is heat sensitive and it's also sensitive to detergents. So if it's super sensitive, it's gonna be easier to kill. If you're wearing this beautiful fur coat that is super sensitive, you're gonna be easier to take out. Same with the viruses. The ones that have the envelopes are easier to kill the viruses that don't have the envelopes are harder to kill because they aren't as sensitive. Viruses are super small. They're smaller than bacteria, which I think you guys already know. But just throwing that out there, viruses have to infect a host cell and hijack the host cell's machinery in order to reproduce, which is the main argument for why viruses aren't considered living. Viruses can't replicate by themselves. They're actually deemed obligate intracellular parasites, which I just think is rather fantastic. I love that they're called that. Viruses, they lack ribosomes to carry out their own protein synthesis, which is why they have to, which is why they need a host. So once the alien invader has hijacked a cell, I think of viruses as alien invaders. I mean, come on, bacteriophages. Anyway, once the virus has got into the host cell and taken over their computers and machines, it starts pumping out viral progeny, which are called variants. The little baby viruses, variants, can now go forth and infect other cells. Speaking of bacteriophage spacecraft, bacteriophages are viruses that target bacteria, which I mentioned a couple minutes ago. I th- actually I think it's a fascinating area of research. Bacteriophages that are targeted for specific pathogenic bacteria can be the next like vast area of medicine. Instead of prescribing your patients an antibiotic, you could send a specimen to a lab that would program a targeted virus for that bacteria, which would be sent back and injected into your patient. The research I conduct has, I've never done anything with viruses because I work with bacteria, but I would love to branch out into bacteriophages a little bit. Something else about viruses that is just amazing is that they can have RNA or DNA, single-stranded, or double-stranded, they can have a lot of genes or a few. So humans and other animals have very stringent regulations on what information we need in our genomes. Viruses are just like, hey, I can do anything I want. Important terms for viral genetic material include positive sense, negative sense, and retroviruses. Positive sense, if a virus has RNA, that can be directly translated to functional proteins, it is said to be sense positive. Negative sense means that RNA strand is a template for a complementary strand. Once the complementary strand is made, the new strands can be used for protein synthesis. Negative sense RNA viruses must also carry an RNA replicase to help with this creation of the complementary strand. So to remember these, I just think if someone is an optimist, they're super positive, they're just going They're just to jump in and go for it. You give them a project, they're just going to hop right into it. Like positive sense RNA viruses. They're going to hop in and can be directly translated. If a person is a little more negative about a project, they might need to talk themselves into it before they get to work. So it's going to be a little bit more of a two-step process. They'll have to talk themselves into it and then start the project. Same with negative sense RNA. It takes the two steps to get where it needs to go. Retroviruses. Retroviruses work backwards. They have an enzyme called reverse transcriptase, which takes the single strand of RNA and makes DNA. This DNA is then incorporated into the host genome. And then the DNA is transcribed as if it was the host's own DNA. See how tricky these obligate intracellular parasites are? The only way to kill a virus once it's in the host like this is to kill the cell. Pop quiz time. What is the most infamous retrovirus? Human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. So this is old science. Actually, it's 2011. So it's a little, I guess it's a little more than old. Old Oldish? I don't know. But when it came out, I, was, I just thought it was so cool. But the headline in my brain was those who had family in Europe that lived through the plague had a 10% chance that they are immune to HIV. Basically, viruses can only infect a specific set of cells, which is dictated by the receptors on the host's cell. HIV can only infect if the host has receptors called CCR5. And the paper released talked about how the Black Death sweeping across the continent was the reason that Europeans or those with European descent have a higher chance of being immune to HIV. The frequent plague outbreaks occurred in tandem with the mutation frequency of the CCR5. Others think that smallpox is the reason that Europeans have a higher immunity to HIV Again, I'll link an article in the script notes. I just thought that that was so cool. I love the idea of that hypothesis. Also, side note, I'm linking episodes to the podcast, This Podcast Will Kill You. Not because this is an ad, but I love this podcast, and they review infectious agents. They have episodes on smallpox and the plague. So listen and enjoy. Just as viruses have different genomes, Viruses have different ways of getting into the cells. Some are endocytosed. Others inject their DNA like a needle. Others bind and become part of the cell's membrane. So if the virus gets into the host, takes over, makes a bunch of baby viruses that now need to be released to the world. The cell could just rupture and release all these virions, like baby spiders hatching. It's going to give me nightmares. But if you kill the thing that you are using to reproduce... That is not the best life choice because then you can't use the cell that you have already taken over and put in the energy to hijack. So another way the virions can escape is by doing a viral version of exocytosis called extrusion. Extrusion is where the virus binds to the plasma membrane and then escapes in a membrane bubble. Escaping this way keeps the host cells alive and lets the virus keep on using the cell as its puppet. When the virus is keeping the cell alive, the virus is said to be in the productive cycle. Again, there are two phases of progeny release, lytic and productive. Lytic, the cell lyses and releases all the progeny. In the productive phase, the cell is kept alive and the virions escape via extrusion. Bacteriophages also have two cycles called lytic and lysogenic cycles. The lytic phase is basically the same The virus hijacks the machinery, makes a bunch of virions, and then ruptures, and releases the virions. If a virus is in the lytic phase, it is called virulent. The lysogenic phase is when the virus integrates itself into the bacterial genome. The virus integrates as a provirus or prophage. The virus integrating into the bacterial genome is what initiates the lysogenic phase. The virus will be replicated along with the bacteria. However, if the bacteria are exposed to environmental factors, like, you know, UV rays or other conditions, the virus can come out of the genome and enter a lytic phase. As the virus leaves the bacterial genome, it can take part of the bacteria's DNA with it, which is what allows transduction between bacteria using a viral vector. Oh, it's all starting to come together and make sense now. The last thing we're going to talk about in this episode for just a minute is prions. Prions are like proteins from hell. They are not alive. They are simply a protein that causes other proteins to misfold. They go from alpha helical to a beta pleated structure. Mad cow disease, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and fatal familial insomnia are all examples of prion disease, which sounds like one of the most terrible ways to die. If you want to read a book about prion disease, check out The Family That Couldn't Sleep, A Medical Mystery. (laughs) Then you won't be able to sleep because you'll be thinking about prions. But on a happy note, we are done. Thank you so much for listening. Ask me questions on Insta at This Selfie Life. Subscribe, rate, review. Thanks for hanging with me. I have a head cold right now, so hopefully I don't sound too crazy. I actually had to keep on stopping this recording as I was going today because I have this head cold and it's making me so dizzy. So, as I'm trying to read this, I had to keep hitting stop because I felt like I was going to fall over, even though I'm sitting down. Anyway, we made it. Congratulations. Steady hard, friends.